Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 first, and then we're going to go to Joshua chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Today we're going to look at an amazing story in the Old Testament, and it has much implication for us here to understand about God and about how God has rescued us in salvation. And I want to just look at uh, something in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. He speaks about this generation that's been wandering around uh, in the wilderness for 40 years. As we come to Joshua 2 this morning, uh, we're going to see some of those that have been wandering and really going to see the, the children about to enter the promised land of those. But when you get to verse 11, um, he's writing about and reminding us about lessons to be learned from those who have gone uh, before us. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, Paul writes these words. He says, now these things happened to them as an example. All those things connected to this, uh, this wilderness generation. And then he says, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So what I would like to do uh, just by way of introduction this morning, first of all, just remind us that one of the key things that we learn from the Old Testament is the biggest one is, is the Old Testament is to prepare us for the understanding of Jesus who is to come. The Old Testament story is Jesus. Now, he has not come in a body yet, but Jesus is alive. And it's, and it's to speak of what the Messiah is going to be like. And so there's all of these stories in the Old Testament that help prepare us to understand who Jesus would be when he came. The book of Joshua that we're going to look at this morning. Joshua is an early picture of Jesus. As a matter of fact, the, word jo- the name Joshua and the name Jesus in the Hebrew are basically the same word. The Lord saves. And so there's this... So there's this Picture even in the life of Joshua as they enter into the promised land and um, that pictures who Jesus is. And so all of these stories of the Old Testament are written down for our instruction so that we would know how to live and we would also know how to not live in regard to making good decisions and then sometimes um, how to not make some of the decisions that that generation did. We're also going to see today this. There is no one on planet earth today, there is nobody in this room today, regardless of what you've done, regardless of what label has put upon you, regardless of what you have willfully done, nobody is too far gone for the grace of God. In this room today, the cross says, because his blood ran, that there's not anybody in here that's too far out of the reach of God. As a matter of fact, everybody in here today, praise his name today, we are all within his reach. Uh, Every single one of us are. We're going to see a story today that, humanly speaking, we could say, no way ever God could do something in that lady's life. And yet God did something unbelievable. So as we come to the text today, you can go ahead and turn back to Joshua chapter 2. As we come to the text today, let me just remind us kind of where we are. So God had led the nation of Israel out of Egypt. They had crossed the Red Sea. Um, They are about to enter into the promised land. They are at a place called Kadesh Barnea. Moses sends 12 spies into the land to kind of look at the land, um, what's going on in the land, what's happening, taking place. The spies come back, and when they come back, two of them come back and say, God can give us the land. Ten of the spies come back and say, there's too many people there, they're giant, we're like grasshoppers, they're big too many armies, too many fortified cities. There's no way that we can do it. And so the nation buys into 
the report of the ten spies. Joshua and Caleb are the two who say, no, we can take the land. Well, the nation, because of the rebellion at Kadesh Barnea, they are forced now to wander around the desert for 40 years. That generation dies out. God has promised their children. There's a certain age limit that he kind of sets. Everybody below this age, um, you're going to make it in the promised land. And then there continue to be children born. But everybody above this age, you're not going to go into the promised land. And so now they have wandered around for 40 years. And they are on the east side of the Jordan River near the city of Jericho. And they are about to enter in the promised land. It's harvest time. Uh, the Jordan River is overflowing its banks. The grain is flowing. There's just all of this, and they are camped at a place called Shidom, and they are there, and Joshua decides he's going to send two spies over into the land to check things out. So look with me in verse 1 of Joshua chapter 2. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shidom as spies, saying, Go view the land, so look at everything, see what's there, and I want you to pay particular attention to especially Jericho. And so they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. So let's, let's walk through this. Let's talk about the spies just for a moment. So you might think from a, a perspective to say, hey, Joshua, not really a good idea. Do you remember what happened last time you sent spies into the promised land? It didn't really go really well. But I think Joshua knows this. He's got a couple of guys that he deeply trusts. They are men of integrity. They are men of great courage. They are men of longing for living in the promised land. And so Joshua, um, from a perspective of being wise, is going to send two trustworthy people into the promised land so that they can look and kind of see what's going on and they can bring a report back to him. He doesn't let anybody else know, and that's very wise of him, because last time that caused a problem that other people, ever, the whole nation knew. So he sends two guys secretly to kind of see what's happening and taking place in the land, and particularly the one thing that they're going to have to do and meet is the city of Jericho. So he wants them to go in the city of Jericho and to kind of see what, happened, what is happening and taking place there. Now I want to talk about these two spots just for a moment, because I find three very fascinating things about them. One, I think they were men of great trustworthiness. They were men of a great integrity, I believe. Because I think Joshua knew that he could send these guys and he could rely on what they would see, um, how it would impact them, that it wouldn't affect their faith, it wouldn't affect their view of God, that God was going to be able to to lead the nation in. So I think they were men who um, were very, very trustworthy. Secondly, I think these guys were brave. Now think about this for a moment. whole nation is camped at Shidem. Uh, we're not for sure exactly how big. At one particular point in time in the desert, the nation of Israel, as they were wondering, was about 2 million people. We're not for sure. Some of them had died out, so we're not for sure. Are they still near that number? Are they less than that number? But they were at least probably 1.5 million people, and they're camped out there. Fears kind of come out of the land. People in Jericho know that this nation that's out there, the reputation that is connected with them. And so these two spies have great bravery. They have to swim the Jordan River at night. So under the cover, cover of darkness, they swim the Jordan River, and they began to spy out the land. And then, and we'll see in the text, and we saw there, that, that they somehow figure out a way to enter the gates of Jericho, and they are walking around in the streets of Jericho. There's not an ally in the city. Nobody's going to fight for them. There's no friends there. There's no distant relatives there. Everybody there is fearful of the people and is going to be fearful of them, is going to be against them. And so the very fact that these guys walk the land, walk into Jericho, 
knowing that they're enemies, indicates the incredible bravery or naivety, whatever you might want to call it, of these guys walking in there. The third thing I want to point out about the two spies before we move on to a surprising choice of who they meet is this. I noticed this this week, and I just kind of paused and just kind of thought about it. They are the first two that got to enter the promised land. And when they came up out of the Jordan River, and they're soaking wet, and they stepped in the promised land, I wonder if they turned to each other and said, we're here. We are here. We've entered. And I wonder what kind of conversation they must have had together as they began to spy out the land, and they began to see this giant city, walled city, right in front of them. Well, God is always unique in what he does and who he chooses. And, and so let's talk now about a surprising choice. So Joshua secretly sends two spies into the land. Uh, they, they step, somehow enter in the city of Jericho, and they are walking in the streets of Jericho. And the Bible tells us that they went and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. This was the place that they were going to stay. Now, let me talk about Rahab just for uh, several moments here because I think it's really significant um, because what happens to her is a picture of what happens with us in our lives. She is mentioned eight times in Scripture. Six of the times that Rahab is mentioned, she is this name, prostitute or harlot, is connected with her. So, even when you come to the New Testament, and it mentions Rahab, it says Rahab the prostitute. This name kind of stuck with her, and I think not because they wanted to put a label on her, but because it wanted to remind us of what God can do with people who are great, great sinners and are so separated from Him. So I don't think under the inspiration of the Scripture, six of these eight times, just wants us to remember that she was, this was her occupation, but I think it wants to say God's grace can do this in somebody's life. And so I think that's why it is connected um, with her. God, I believe, has sovereignly led the two spies into the streets of Jericho. God has uniquely, wherever they met, we don't know how they met, uh, it's possible that she's in the streets plying her trade of a prostitute trying to meet men in the street, or maybe she overhears a conversation, whatever the case may be. Somehow the two spies meet Rahab, a conversation takes place, and she opens up her home for them to come in. But I think ultimately not only was this a military reconnaissance mission of the two spies, But I think sovereignly, we'll see it here in a moment, God was already at work in Rahab's heart, and God was going to use these two men to uniquely bring about salvation to Rahab and her family. So let me show you, just for a moment, two unique ways God's sovereignty was working in the story. Of all the places these guys could have walked in the city of Jericho, Jericho um, was a gigantic city. It was really, really big. Um, you have a whole nation that it takes them to walk around, and so it's a really big place. And so they're walking around, and somehow the only person in the city of Jericho, we might go, wow, what a coincidence. Somehow the only person in the city of Jericho that these two spies meet who shows some hospitality to them is Rahab the prostitute. And again, who knows? We don't know the motivation as to why she approached them or they approached her, whatever the case may be. There's no way it was connected to immorality, um, even though this was her trade. But I believe that God was working in the two spies and in Rahab to bring them together to bring about salvation. Now, let me give you three things about 
about Rahab that were against her. And there were a number of things that were against her. First one was her nationality. She was a Canaanite. They were descendants of the Amorites, but they were a Can- she was a Canaanite. Uh, these people had been marked by God from the time of Abraham. When God spoke to Abraham, they had been marked by God that God was eventually going to destroy this people. They're, they were, we'll, we'll talk about it in a moment, but they were very evil in regard to uh, their practices, their religious practices, and things of, things of that nature. And so she is a Canaanite. This stands against her, her nationality, her heritage. As a matter of fact, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13, God has a conversation with Abraham. And listen to what God tells Abraham about the Canaanite people. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Now just stop for a moment. God is telling Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation and your descendants are going to outnumber the grains of the sand. But in the beginning, here's what's going to happen. Your descendants are going to live in another land called Egypt and they're going to live there for 400 years. And it's not going to go well for them there, but I'm going to bring them out. So listen to what it says. But I will bring judgment on the nation, this is Egypt, that they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. Genesis 15, 15. As for you, Abraham, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. And they, the nation in Israel, in Egypt, excuse me, the nation of Israel, and they shall come back here, Abram, As I'm talking to you, this land that you're just going to be a sojourner, you're not going to own any property here, they're going to come back here in the fourth generation. And then listen to what it says here. For the iniquity of the Amorites or the Canaanites is not yet complete. So here's what God tells Abraham. I'm going to send you all away and you're going to be living in Egypt. You're going to live in Egypt for 400 years. During that time, the Amorite, Canaanite people are going to live in Canaan. They're going to build cities. They're going to do things. And you are going to be oppressed. And I'm preparing you to bring you into this land. But while they live here for 400 years, they're going to just commit evil after evil after evil after evil. And God was allowing the Canaanite people time to to fulfill this. But he was also giving them an opportunity to repent. Now listen to this. God has marked these people for destruction because he knows that when his people get in there, they will not be able to coexist with the Canaanite people. It will be a problem. It was always a problem for Israel in following the other gods. But I want you to watch this. Don't miss this. God gave the Canaanite people from Genesis 15, 15, 400 years to repent. And then they're at Kadesh Barnea. The nation rebels. He gives the Canaanite people another 40 years as, as they wander in the wilderness. Now they're camped at Shittim, several days that they are there. They're about to cross the Jordan River. He gives them a little bit more, and if that's not enough, in a little bit, they're going to cross the Jordan River, and they're going to come to Jericho, and God's going to give them seven more days as they march around the city to give them a chance to repent. Listen to me. God's loving kindness and patience toward lost people is unbelievable and people today in our culture say to God oh he's just some God up there and he just wants to get us all the time no I want to tell you um, we praise his name we don't get what we deserve we don't get how holy he is 
And he's given the Amorite people 440 years and about 10 more days to repent. Because God's that way. God, God's a forgiving God. And if some of them would have repented and said, we have, we have worshipped ourselves, we have worshipped Baal, we have worshipped Dagon, we have worshipped all of these false gods, and we have committed heinous acts, God would have allowed them to repent because that's who God is. And Rahab is named among those people that God has marked for destruction. The second thing to notice about Rahab that's against her is her religion. The Canaanite people were horrible people. Some of their gods were El, Bel, Dagon, Ashtaroth, and Bel. And these were gods and goddesses of sexuality, of sex, and war. So the Canaanite people were very immoral and very violent. And so that's, what, that's, that, that's who lives in the city of Jericho. And they've been doing this for 440 years. So God's been patient with them. She is marked among the Canaanite people. Her religion is awful. One of the things that the Canaanites practice is they would take their newborn children and they would throw them in the fire to sacrifice to the gods. And it is possible that through the trade that Rahab had that she may have had children and had even sacrificed some of her children to some of these gods. Who knows some of the things that Rahab had done, but she was among those people. The third thing against Rahab is her occupation. She was giving her body to make money and sex with men. Can you think of anybody that you might want to go, well, we can probably check her off the list of coming to know Christ. And I just want to remind you, and you know this too, I was on somebody's list at some time in my life. I guarantee you, um, I didn't come to Christ until my junior end of my junior year, and I... There were several people, and I've talked with them who knew me back in those days, who thought, man, he'll never get his life right. And look at me now. I don't mean that braggingly. Look what God has done. And I look across this room, and some of you, don't. none of us have Rahab's past, but some of us got a past. And we're here today just totally different from who we used to be. In this beauty of grace. And I get my dander up. I don't know what that means, but I, I know what it means, but I don't know where it came from. When people look at the Old Testament and say, that's just a God in the Old Testament of wrath. Gosh, no. Joshua 2 is as much, Joshua 2 could fit in the New Testament about grace. Just the working of God's grace in somebody's life. So the spies meet someone in whom God has already touched. God is already working. And just like Rahab, you and I have to be careful to not put labels on people and only see their scars. Everybody in the room here, we've got some scars from sin that people could point to. But we've got, got to look beyond that. We've got to see that God is a God of grace. And I think as the two spies meet with Rahab, there's, no, again, no hint of immorality of what's taking place there. But our amazing God supernaturally has brought these three people together to do something amazing. And I want to remind us before we move to the next point, do not ever write anybody off. Don't write anybody off. That person can't come. That person's not going to get it together. And I want to remind us today that sinners are welcome at LifePoint. 
Those who don't know God and are living anti to Him, let them come in, sit in these chairs, but we don't want them to stay the way they are. We want them to come to faith, and we want them to be transformed by the power of the gospel. Every one of us, in case you have forgotten, every one of us at one point in time was not a believer if you are a believer. You were marked for destruction. I was marked for destruction. But now I have come to know Him. You have come to know Him. And we are not who we used to be. So we, so we welcome sinners because God can do a work in sinners' lives to bring them salvation. Well, let's look at verse 7 now. Or verse 2. We're not even to verse 7 yet. We're going to get to verse 7. All right, verse 2. The secret is out about the two spies. Let's read 2 through 7. So it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. And I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. And so the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Well, after wandering for 40 years, these guys weren't very good spies. They were not going to open a spy agency or detective agency when they got into the promised land. They were immediately spotted out that night when they came in. We're not sure how they were, but the word gets out. Three times in Joshua 2, as we read through this, it says this, that the people's hearts melted when they heard about the God of Israel and they heard about the nation of Israel. So fears in Jericho. They know these people are camped on the other side of the Jordan River. And so they are fearful of what's going to happen. They had heard the stories of Egypt. And they'd heard the stories of the two kings that had opposed Israel. And that were deposed um, because of what they did. So she opens up her home. Brings the two spies in. Eastern hospitality back in those days was really, really amazing. As a matter of fact, when we lived in Europe, we experienced that as well. Uh, One of Peyton's good friends was from Iran. And we would go over to their house, and I knew that when I was going to go over to pick up Peyton on a Friday night at that house, that I was staying for about four hours. There was no showing up. There was no showing up, and, okay, I'm going to honk the horn. You come outside. No, you had to come in. They had to feed you and feed you and feed you. And so I, I, um, I've never been to that nation, but I love the Iranian people. I, I've, I've been around them. And they, they are just amazing, hospitable people. Rahab would have been like that. She would have been to the spies. She would have brought them in. She would have fed them. She would have taken care of them. She would have had conversations. And so when the, when, when the king of Jericho, who probably is more like a mayor, um, but he's actually he was called a king, um, he would have been over the military within Jericho. When he hears that two spies have come, he probably sends some soldiers. They, hey, Rahab, we know two guys have come in here. Uh, they are not very good spies. We saw them. Um, where are they? And, and so she lies. Do you know that sinners lie? Do you all know that? But they do. So she lies. Could she have trusted in God and just told the truth? Yeah, they're up on the roof. And God could have still worked it out. Obviously, yes. She's a lost person. You know what lost people do? They sin. Christians, we shouldn't lie. 
uh, we want to speak the truth. But I think even if she had spoken the truth, God would have done something sovereignly and uniquely that night. But she lies to the soldiers. I don't know where the guys were. They are here. They're gone. You ought to chase them. They left. And, uh, and so they go, and the secret is out. And in that moment, when this happens, she has a moment of fear. Door opens up. Soldiers are there. Am I going to reside and trust in the two spies and their God? Or am I going to continue on with my Canaanite people? And she has a moment. She has to decide what she's going to do. And even though she lies, and the Bible doesn't affirm the lie, it just tells us here, she lied about it, and she sides with the two spies. By the way, let me say this. Hebrews chapter 11, do you all remember what Hebrews chapter 11 is? We call it the Hall of Faith, I think it's called. People call it that. It's all this list of all of those great people. Guess who's in chapter 11? Rahab. So lest we just skip over this story this morning, the New Testament writers, I think Paul wrote Hebrews, but James, the Lord's half-brother, wrote the epistle of James. So I think Paul and James both write about Rahab, and they write about this instance here. This is a really big deal, what Rahab does here. To house the spies, take care of them, hide them. The New Testament affirms this was a moment of great faith for her. For she was forsaking her people, her past. A people marked out for destruction by God. And now she was going to identify with God's people and with the people of God, their God. And so this is an incredible moment. So Hebrews 11.31 says this, By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And she had put them up, put them up on the roof. Um, the flax, these were stalks that were about four foot high, so probably about this high. And they would lay them out flat on the roof to dry out. And once they dry, they would put them together and they would tie them together and they would stack them up. And so she has stacked these up and they're kind of back there hiding. And again, I think by the sovereignty of God, if you were a good soldier, you'd go into Rahab's house and you'd look up on the roof. But God kept them, obviously, it looks like from doing that. And the spies were not found out. But the secret is out. The spies are there. Now look at verse 8. Let's talk about the sovereign work of God. So before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. For there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And I just find this amazing. Watch this. We don't know how old Rahab is. Let's say she's 30 years old. For most of her life, she has heard stories of this people who came out of Egypt. And though she gave her life in immoral ways, 
She heard these stories about a, a people God brought out of Egypt. He separated the sea so that they could walk straight through it. And then when their enemy came, he put the waters down and he, he wiped away their enemy that stood against them. And they walked on dry ground all the way over to a place of safety. And he destroyed their enemies. And this word had gotten to them. And then more recently, this word about two Amorite kings had gotten to them. Now watch this. Maybe for about 30 years, Rahab the prostitute, who was just living the most immoral, godless life, was actually thinking about God. Really? Yeah. She's heard about all this, and I think God is at work with her. And in her safety, giving to the two spies, it indicates that she is not wanting to identify with her people anymore. She is wanting to identify with God. And notice, she has this God-centered view of God that is amazing of someone who'd never been taught truth, never been to a synagogue, never had met a Jew before. She understands about God, and I think God had been at work in her heart. So she says in, in the first part of verse 9, she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. We've been here for 440 years and some days, but I know this, I know this, that God's given you the land. And in that statement, she understands that the promise of God to this people is going to be fulfilled by God. So she embraces the promise of God. Secondly, this permeating fear of God's presence was filling the place, and it was literally everywhere and everywhere. The inhabitants of the land, their hearts were melting away. And so here, God was already at work in her heart. He was already at work in the inhabitants of Jericho with fear. And then she says in verse 10, For we have heard how the Lord, the Lord did that work when he dried the water so that you could walk across. And so she knew about the power of God, that God had the power to do things. And God was already at work in Rahab's heart, for the testimony about him is clear to her. It's beautiful that she, even in the midst of her immoral lifestyle, had come to an understanding that there was more to this life than what she was doing. And not only that, fourthly, she understood that God was a personal God. And I love what she says in the, in the middle part of verse 11. She says, as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, for there is no spirit left in any man because of you, for the Lord your God. He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. You see, God sometime before had begun to work on her heart and he was preparing a way for Israel to move into the promised land and for the salvation of Rahab. Now let me just remind us before we move on of what I've already touched on. The Bible thinks this is a really big deal what she does here. Joshua 2, think of all the stories. And I, one of the things I'm excited about heaven is Jesus. Let me say that. I'm excited about Jesus. But I think, can you, can you imagine all the stories of faith that have happened in the history of the world that aren't recorded in Scripture, even way back when? And we're going to meet some of those people. I think we're going to learn some, some moments of great faith. But under the inspiration of the Spirit, the Spirit thought, this is a pretty significant story that I'm going to include that gives a picture of salvation 
to someone and she recognizes your God, your God. He's your God. He's identified with you. And Rahab wants to be identified with the people of God. And so the New Testament thinks it's a really big deal what she does here. And she is listed in among those who have great faith. You know what sinners do before they come to know the Lord? There's a longing for salvation. That when God opens our eyes and we recognize we are separated from Him, there's a longing in that moment that says, I need you, God, to rescue me. Look at 12 and 14. And look at the sinner's longing for salvation. So now then, please swear to me by the Lord, this is Rahab speaking, as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother and my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. And if you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the lamb, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And listen to Rahab's longing for salvation for herself and for her family. And I find it extraordinary. She's had, again, no spiritual teachers. No spiritual teachers. She's never seen anybody sing a song to Yahweh. She has never seen anybody worship. She has never seen anything. And yet she gets it that your God is the God of the heavens and the earth. He is the God. He's the God and I want to know him. And she's been thinking about it and there's this longing for her. And so she says to them, swear to me that when you come and I know that the city's going to be destroyed, that you'll save me and my family. And so the men said, okay, yeah, we will do that. And so Rahab hid the slaves, the, the two spies, sorry. And she got them out safely out of the city, lowered them down the wall. By the way, let me just say this. They believe, and most cities were this way back in the day, there was an outer wall, and then there was a, maybe about 10 to 15 to 20 feet inside, there was another wall. Most, most of these walled cities had two walls. And in between those two walls, they built houses. And Rahab would have had a house in between those two walls on the outer walls so that she could lower them out. And if you think again, that's coincidence that God didn't a long time ago mark out a place for Rahab to live for this moment, then I think we're foolish. You see, God is not bound by time. He told Abraham, 400 years y'all are going to be in Egypt. God, already, God knows things, and I find that incredibly boosting of my confidence and faith with him today that there's never a moment in our lives that God is shocked and surprised oh no I didn't know that North Korea was going to do this I didn't know that ISIS was going to come about and just all of this stuff God has never been surprised and sometimes we look at the world and we go what's God up to sometimes we just don't know but God God is always up to something He's always up to something, and he's always doing something. And so here is Rahab, and she has this longing for salvation. And watch this. She wants to leave her sinful life, and she wants to be a part of the people of God. She doesn't want to live the way she's been living anymore. I think there's something in her that knows it's not right. And I also want to remind us of this before we look at the next thing. Listen to me. We have no idea. Can you imagine the immorality that marked Rahab's life? Can you imagine it? Did she give up some of her children for sacrifice? The men that had been in her house. The religious practices that she would have practiced 
and been a part of. Some scholars believe that she potentially was also a temple prostitute in Jericho. And so the Canaanite people were just awful. Worship connected was just about always connected with sex. And so was she not only a prostitute by trade, but was she a temple prostitute? And listen to me. Listen. She possibly could have been one of the worst sinners in regard to acts in the history of the world. But there is no sinner that God has marked off to say, you cannot come to know me. And I hope you hear that today. Because I guarantee you, if she could stand before us today, I don't think we don't want to hear what she did. But she would say to us, you wouldn't believe what I was like. You would not believe what I was like. You see, sin does not disqualify us from being a believer. For all of us, it was the preparatory stage for us to become a believer where we recognized that our sin separated us from God and we needed a Savior. So let's look at the next thing. Love this. Look at 15. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go to the hills, or your pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned, and then afterward you may go your way. And the men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Look at 18. Strong verse, 18. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and your mother, your brothers and your father's household. Now just stop for a moment. Here's what I think is happening. They have let this scarlet cord out the window. They have climbed down, and I think she's doing this. And they're down on the ground, scarlet cords hanging down, She's leaning out the window and they're communicating this oath and this promise that's there. And she's talking to him, swear to me, okay, here, you leave this rope here and this rope is going to be the sign that when we come and the city's destroyed that where the rope is hanging out of the window, salvation will come to that house. It's called the scarlet thread of redemption and it runs through the scripture. And it doesn't start here. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when man sewed fig leaves together after they sinned to cover themselves. God came in and that wasn't sufficient enough. And so God put animal skins on them indicating that an animal in the garden, at least one, lost its life so that the sin and the shame of Adam and Eve could be covered. Exodus, Passover, blood on the doorpost, red blood so that salvation would come to God's people scarlet cord hanging out of Rahab's window red so that salvation would come to Rahab the study of the color red in the Old Testament is a picture of the blood of Christ that was to come that's why we love the cross because the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all our sin the red cord becomes the sign of Rahab's faith just as the red stream of Christ's blood is the only thing that God recognizes for the cleansing of sin and salvation. So the Israeli soldiers, the Jewish soldiers, would recognize that red cord. And I think if it wasn't just one, she went to the local market and bought several red cords because she wanted to make sure when they came, it was clearly marked and identified. 
And I think despite Rahab's desire, despite her faith, despite the promises of these spies, she would have perished unless she would have put her trust in that hanging of that red cord outside. It just was not going to happen. So she does. Look at verse 21. And so she's leaning out the window and says, according to your word, so be it. And then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. And Rahab had to decide, am I going to trust my heritage? Am I going to trust our gods? Or am I going to trust what these spies? And so she places her trust in what they say to her. If you'll do this, you'll be saved. It's the same way with us. If we want to know God and we want to have forgiveness, we have to trust in what the Scripture says, that it is the cross of Christ, it is the blood of Christ that brings us into a relationship. We don't add anything to that. It is sufficient enough to forgive us of our sin. And all, Rahab was ultimately saved because she placed her faith and trust in the words that were told to them by the told to her by the two spies that if you'll do this you will be saved and so she says according to your word so be it i trust exactly what you say and rahab immediately put her faith into both the identification and the safety of the scarlet cord and it just hung there for a little bit more i thought about this too she didn't know how the destruction of jericho was going to come So when the nation marched around seven times, guess what they saw, the whole nation saw, hanging out of a window, scarlet cord. They saw it. She didn't know how this was going to be, but she just believed it. Joshua, as I told you earlier, was a picture of Jesus, early picture. Joshua would be a savior for Rahab. But for those in Jericho, he would be a judge for those who don't believe, who didn't believe. Jesus is that as well. For those of us who put our faith and trust in him, he becomes our savior. But for those who reject him, he becomes our judge. And so all the inhabitants of Joshua, that happened with them. All right, go to Matthew chapter 1. We'll close with this point. We'll talk about the sinner's inheritance. Of all the things people love to read in the New Testament, Matthew 1, the first part, is not at the top of the list. But if you actually read through these things and you'll know your Old Testament, there's some amazing indications in here. Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of of Amenadab. And Amenadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and to Jesse, the father of David, the king. Do you notice that? Do you know what's in the bloodline of Jesus? He is not a pure Jew. He has Canaanite blood from Rahab. And it's an early picture that says God was going to bring the Gentiles into the kingdom. 
He was going to bring them in. Jesus is a descendant of Rahab. And I think about that this morning. I just, uh, he has come to destroy an entire city called Jericho, and he spares a woman of faith who had a past that was awful. And she gets to be in the genealogy of Jesus. If you're here today and you think, I am too far gone, my family's too far gone, my husband's too far gone, my grandparents are too far gone, my kid, on and on and on and on and on, I just would remind you that Rahab is in the genealogy of Jesus. The blood of Rahab flowed through Christ's body. A Canaanite, idolatrous prostitute, got saved and brought into the kingdom of Israel. And Jesus came from her it's incredible narrative let me close with this so Jericho falls amazing story just falls down city is destroyed and Joshua 6 22 says this but the two men who had spied out the land Joshua said to them go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and to all who belonged to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in, and they brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. So lest you think they're being mean to her, oh, oh the sinner prostitute, we've got to keep her out. She's not clean. God wanted a holy people, and so they kept them outside of the camp, until they were purified, and then guess what happened? Then they were brought in. And they were grafted in, brought in to the people of God as they settled the promised land. Listen to this. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute, listen to this, but Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her Joshua saved alive, alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Two closing thoughts. I wondered this week about the conversation Rahab and her family had as they walked out of the rubble of Jericho. And there was one place standing. That's what it appears. There's one place standing probably wasn't real hard to go in and find the one place that was standing can you imagine the conversation they must have had what did they discuss and then as they burned the city and they're outside in the camp as they see the smoke rising from their past I wonder what they talked about and I think Rahab must have just went this God has delivered me and my people he has delivered me He is the God of the heavens, and He is the God of the earth. And little did they know. And how can you, in a moment like that, know what God will do in your life? One day, she's a part of the people of God, and she's somewhere in the camp. And a guy sees her. His name's Salmon, not the fish, but his name's Salmon. And he must have gone... They get married. And this woman who had given her body 
to who knows how many men for the rest of her life becomes a chaste woman, fidelity to her husband. And that's just what God can do. Just what God can do. And King David came from her, and Jesus came from her. So if you're here today and you're enslaved like Rahab was, no hope, no hope. Well, I have hope for you today. You no longer have to be a slave to your sin. The cross has happened so that we can be free. And just like Rahab, we, she placed her faith in this red rope that hung out of her window. We place our faith in the blood of Jesus that it secures salvation, permanent salvation that cannot be lost. So I hope today we're reminded of the glorious salvation that we are brought into the kingdom like Rahab was. And God always does this. He just transforms lives. Let's pray.